Before we dig into this week's episode, I am excited to share an update in a previously covered case. Episode 78, The Murder of Renee Sweeney. 23-year-old Renee was a talented musician and college student who worked part-time at the adults-only video store in Sudbury, Ontario. In January of 1998, she was stabbed to death during her shift. An arrest was made almost 20 years after the fact, and in April of 2023, Robert Stephen Wright, now 43 years old, was found guilty of her murder. As of this writing, they are working on setting a sentencing date for him. It's likely he will receive 18 to 25 years in prison for her murder. And I don't know about you, but I love it when a case comes to close and long-awaited justice is finally served. Also, another note, I've had people reach out to me about the number of interview episodes I've released this year. I do try and mix it up and run the occasional episode with an interview. Most of the time, I do the narrative at the beginning, and the second half of the episode is the interview, like we did with the April Millsap case and, more recently, the siege at the Rialto. I know not everyone enjoys the interviews, so I try to leave them separate so you can choose to listen as you prefer. If you're looking for some of my older episodes, I moved much of my earliest work over to Patreon, and I did this for a couple of reasons. One is that the cases are often out of date, and or the audio quality is not to my liking. If you are able to support the show on Patreon for as little as $2.50 a month, you get early, ad-free access to all episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. So if you sign up today, you'll find dozens of ad-free episodes that you haven't heard before. Finally, if you need more Nina, I am hosting They Walk Among America. You can find They Walk Among America on your favorite podcatcher. This podcast covers cases from all over the country, and the episodes are, on average, about 10 minutes longer than an average already gone episode. So if you haven't checked out They Walk Among America, give it a listen, starting with episode 32. And I apologize for the long intro to the episode. I usually avoid doing this type of housekeeping, and just like with real life, it builds up. So now, on with the show. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. When a woman is murdered, police often immediately focus on her romantic partner. When a woman is murdered alongside a child, they look at the people closest to the deceased, trying to find the answer to a terrible question. In this case, police took a long look at Sean Dickus for the murder of his wife and son. He was ruled out. Sean was at work in front of several witnesses, and his alibi is solid. Today, we're discussing a horrific double murder, the violent death of a woman and a child. Come with me to Franklin, Indiana, where they still talk about and worry over an unsolved double homicide from the summer of 2006.
China Lynn Anderson was born January 22, 1980, in Waukegan, Illinois. Raised by her mother and grandmother, she was close with her family. After high school, China studied nursing at Marion College. After a couple of semesters, she switched her focus from nursing to marketing. China's mother, Marcia, would introduce her daughter to one of her co-workers, Sean Dickus. Sean and Marcia worked together at NSK Corporation, a manufacturing company. Sean was a former Marine. He'd been married once previously to a woman named Christina. And during that marriage, he and Christina welcomed a son, Blake, in 1996. In 1998, the marriage, which really hadn't been working, finally collapsed. Sean and Christina navigated shared custody in a mature and cordial fashion. They put their son's needs first. As his relationship with China progressed, Sean was very much in love, and the feeling was reciprocated. Sean would later tell the Indianapolis Star newspaper, I couldn't believe how happy I was with her. The love and the happiness was mutual. She didn't just love Sean. China also cared about Blake. A friend said, China treated Blake as if he was her actual son and took care of him that way. For his birthday, she made him a cake with special cartoon characters. The Daily Journal reported that China was known for making homemade gifts and sending handwritten notes to friends. Sean affectionately called her Betty Homemaker. China was remembered as someone who was always concerned about making everyone around her feel as comfortable as possible. Her friend Lisa said, she had a tender servant's kind of heart. Sean said China had a knack for remembering people's birthdays and anniversaries. She would add personal touches to gifts. While she didn't work outside the home, China kept busy and spent her time reading, shopping, and scrapbooking. The Dickus family were very active in their church. Soon before her murder, China became a greeter at the church. People loved her cheerful nature. She was naturally bubbly and glowing. While Sean and China were very happy, there was a third party in their relationship, Sean's son Blake. In the summer of 2006, Blake was 10 years old. He was looking forward to starting grade four at Needham Elementary School. Christina, Sean, and China were involved in his education. Blake's teacher said, They adored him. This family really would have done anything for that child. Blake was a regular kid. He enjoyed visiting amusement parks and watching cartoons. He also loved spending time with friends and family, riding his bike, playing basketball, and swimming. Sean had this to say about Blake when he spoke to the Indianapolis Star, quote, He was my most prized possession, a true treasure from the Lord. His favorite thing was playing video games. And Blake's favorite games included Super Mario Brothers and Sonic the Hedgehog. In the summer of 2006, Sean worked as a supervisor at NSK Corporation, and China was a homemaker. Both Sean and China were going to night school, taking courses at Indiana Wesleyan University to earn their bachelor's degrees. They coordinated schedules so they could go to classes on the same nights. In the early summer of 2006, Sean and China traveled to Ecuador for a mission trip. 
they went with a hundred volunteers from their church. Sean helped build a new school, while China assisted a medical team to treat children and others in need. 2006 was a busy summer for the young family. In addition to the mission trip, on June 20th, China and Sean purchased a home in a brand new housing division called Brannigan Woods. It was just off US 31 in Franklin, Indiana, about 25 miles south of Indianapolis. Their home, a colonial with an attached two-car garage, was in the 1100 block of Aberdeen Drive. According to the Indianapolis Star, the subdivision was new, and not all the homes were finished. In addition to houses in the process of being built, there were several completed homes that were unoccupied. These empty homes had glossy for sale signs planted in the yards. The Dickus home was flanked by two empty houses and the home across the street was also unoccupied. With the purchase of the house on Aberdeen Drive, the couple had crossed an item off their wish list. The next item on that list was a baby. They hoped to grow their family with a new sibling for big brother Blake. Reflecting on the early summer of 2006, Sean told the Indianapolis Star that they were happy. Even after a few years together, they still kissed and held hands and felt blessed to be together. Their time together is coming to an end. July 24th, the worst day of Sean's life, is fast approaching. The weekend before the murders, July 22nd and 23rd, Sean and Blake went to the county fair. They rode the rides and ate carnival food and played games. They spent quality time together. They had the sort of days that you remember, days you look back on fondly, when you can almost hear the laughter and feel the sun shining warmly. Monday, July 24th, started like any other day. Sean went to work. Blake was still at Sean's house. He was supposed to return to his mom's that day. And while you'll hear a lot of speculation about what happened on the 24th, I'm going to try to break the day down for you. We're not going to be speculating. We're going to be talking about what we know for certain. Just after 11 a.m., China called a neighbor to ask if she could stop by and compare water bills. At lunchtime, Sean stopped home to eat. This was a regular and normal occurrence. Sean worked close to home, so popping in for lunch with his wife and child was something he did often. At approximately 1.30 p.m., China had a phone call with her mother. Sean was still at home. He left about 1.40. After that, China and Blake were alone at the house. At 5.14, Sean called 911 from the Dickus home. He had arrived home and found both China and Blake brutally murdered. Sean ran outside and informed his neighbors that his wife and son were dead. One neighbor recalled seeing Sean standing in his front yard area. He was just bent over, just bawling. The same neighbor caught the arrival of Blake's mother, Christina, who ran to the house screaming, Is my baby in there? Please tell me he's alive. When officers arrived on scene, they found Blake and China, and they were both pronounced dead. Autopsies would later conclude that 26-year-old China died from multiple stab wounds. Ten-year-old Blake died from a blow to the head. This was his primary cause of death. However, there were two other contributing causes, asphyxia 
and multiple stab wounds. Specific details on where the stab wounds were or what caused these wounds were not released to the public. Police withheld this information as an investigative tactic. Detectives reviewed the scene, which was beyond horrific. Franklin Police Chief John Borges told the Indianapolis Star that evidence of violence at the crime scene was, quote, the hardest he has ever been involved in. And as I mentioned, police are withholding some information about the murders as an investigative tactic. They have never revealed if there were signs of a break-in, where the bodies were found in the home, or whether China was sexually assaulted. We can say with certainty that investigators found blood throughout the home and recovered a 2 by 4 board with blood and tissue on one end. As police began their investigation, they wanted to speak with Sean. Not only is he the most likely suspect because of his relationship with the deceased, he was, after all, the last person to see them alive, and he's the one that found the bodies. Now, I can't tell you exactly what he shared with investigators, but I can give you a summary based on what he told the media. Sean said that on Monday, Blake was still staying at his and China's place, but he was supposed to go to his grandmother's that day. That afternoon, Sean went home for lunch. He told the Daily Journal that he went home because he wanted to encourage Blake to spend time with his mother and maternal grandmother. They wouldn't be seeing each other for a few days due to a trip Blake was taking. At around 1.40 p.m., Sean went back to work. He didn't call to check up on China or Blake because he was busy. He also knew China was busy with schoolwork. He also thought Blake would go to his grandmother's house soon after he left for lunch. Sean returned home about 5.15. He was going to pick up his school books in China because they both had classes at IWU that night. He found that the door from the garage to the kitchen was open. And this wasn't unusual because sometimes China would be there waiting for him. But when he went inside, China wasn't there to greet him. Sean was not expecting Blake to be home because he was supposed to be gone to his grandmother's already. Sean did his normal evening routine. He took off his shoes, he went inside, and that's when he noticed that things weren't right in the home. He proceeded through the house until he found his worst nightmare. He called 911 and did not leave his son's side until the dispatchers told him that he had to. Investigators immediately started looking into Sean as a suspect, which again, were not surprised. They searched through his computer and his email, and they searched the trash cans at his place of work. For his part, Sean cooperated completely. He gave fingerprints, he gave DNA, and he agreed to participate in a lot of questioning. Investigators also spoke with neighbors. Neighbors said they didn't hear anything out of the ordinary on the 24th. One neighbor did say that she saw a truck pull up in front of the home around 11.30 p.m. on the 23rd. She said a man got out, walked up to the house, then walked back to his truck and drove away about a minute later. Neighbors told the Indianapolis Star that they were shocked that a brutal double murder happened there. This area had a reputation for being safe. Some even chose this neighborhood specifically because it was safe. On July 25th, investigators announced they had no suspects. They said they were looking into a burglary that was reported on the 24th around 7 p.m. 
A burglary happened in the 2500 block of Woodfield Boulevard, and this house is just four houses down from the Dickus home. The burglary was discovered when the homeowner arrived home. This meant the burglary occurred in daylight hours, sometime after the homeowners left for the day at 9 a.m. The intruder cut a screen to an open window. A steak knife with a wooden handle was left in the office, and this knife was taken into evidence. Investigators said there wasn't anything linking the burglary to the murders, but they were still looking into it. They also said they were examining evidence, hiring a blood spatter expert because they wanted to reconstruct the scene, and following up on tips and leads from neighbors and family. Early in the investigation, police interviewed more than 50 people, including family and friends. They had received some good leads to look into. Sean spoke with the Indianapolis Star. He said, quote, It is unimaginable to think about not being with her. I hope I can be as gracious in her death as she was in my life. Sean also talked about how his ex, Christina, was doing. He said, quote, I ache for her pain. We both don't know what to tell each other. Sean also spoke with the Daily Journal. He said he wants China and Blake to be remembered, that they were treasures from God. He said, I walked into the worst thing you can imagine. I know they suffered in their death. They love the Lord with all their heart and soul. Because of that, they're safe and they're in a better place now. By July 26th, investigators learned there had actually been a string of as many as five burglaries in a half-mile radius from the Dickus home around the time of the murders. All of the burglaries took place during the day on weekdays between June and July 2006. At each burglary, the home was ransacked, refrigerator doors were left open or had been gone through, and small items like cash, coins, jewelry, food, or drinks were taken from the homes. And I need to mention that these burglaries have never been solved. On July 26th, just days after the murders, it was reported that the Franklin police had more evidence and information than they could handle as quickly as they would like, so they teamed up with detectives from the Johnson County Sheriff's Office, the Greenwood Police Department, Cumberland Police Department, and the Indiana State Police. And we've seen this teamwork or task force happen in other cases, and frankly, I think it's a really smart thing to do. For the next few days, officers patrolled the area and spoke with neighbors. They handed out flyers about the murders, while also trying to talk to residents about their safety concerns. Not surprisingly, the neighborhood was on edge. Nothing ever happened there. Then, all of a sudden, there were a string of burglaries and a brutal double homicide. Police told residents not to panic, but to be cautious and to lock their doors. On July 27th, landscapers were working about half a mile from the Dickus home when they found a red-stained shirt. Investigators collected the shirt as evidence. They said it was too early to tell if the red stains were blood or if the shirt was related to the murders. It's unclear if this shirt was ever found to be related to the case. By the end of the week, they were still combing over every inch of the Dickus home and running down leads and information as it came in. Police were processing dozens of tips each day. 
On July 28th, Chief Borges sat down with the Daily Journal to speak about the investigation. He said, they still don't have any solid suspects, and they're taking a broad approach. They were in it for the long haul. They would do anything to investigate the case as properly and as thoroughly as possible. When asked if Sean was a suspect, and honestly, a lot of people thought Sean was a suspect, Borges said Sean, quote, has been nothing but assisting us with this investigation. He has had a cooperative attitude with us. By August 1st, investigators were looking at 85 leads. Meanwhile, a state police helicopter took aerial photos of the home and the area. On August 2nd, investigators collected more evidence from the backyard of the Dickus home. By August 3rd, the FBI was brought in to help. Sean told the Daily Journal that he was happy to hear an FBI agent was brought on board. He was glad to know that they could use FBI resources. Sean told the Daily Journal that his Marine Corps training taught him to overcome struggle and keep going in tough times, and it was helping him to cope. But even with his strong faith and military background, he was sleeping poorly only a couple of hours each night. On August 4th, evidence was sent in to the Indiana State Police Lab for testing. Details on what evidence was sent has never been revealed. And at this point, investigators said they had received more than 120 leads, and they'd investigated almost 80 of them. By August 9th, the extra police patrols ended. Because the neighborhood was still on edge, the neighborhood's developer hired additional officers to patrol when they were off-duty. On August 10th, Chief Borges told the media that Sean was not the focus of the investigation. They ruled Sean out because he was alibied as being at work, and he passed a polygraph with the FBI. And look, I know how you feel about polygraphs because I feel the same way. But the polygraph was part of an investigative package used to rule Sean out in the slayings. Investigators did tell the press that while their investigation remained broad, they had not eliminated the possibility that China and Blake knew their killer. Sean told the media that since the beginning of the investigation, he has tried to rack his brain on who would want to hurt China and Blake, but he can't think of anyone. Neither himself, his wife, nor his child had enemies. It was about August 10, 2006, that the case started to slip out of the newspapers. At the end of the month, on the 28th, China's mother wrote a message in the Daily Journal. She thanked the detectives for working nonstop on the investigation. She said that every single time she had called the department, she received a call back. But in September, the investigation slowed down as well. Franklin detectives had a better handle on the investigation, so detectives from the other agencies returned to their own caseload, and detectives stopped working 12- and 16-hour shifts seven days a week. Investigators said they still didn't have a suspect. They spent the previous month talking to neighbors, family, and people associated with the Dickus family. They were sorting through almost 200 tips. In late October, investigators said they had four detectives working the case. They were looking into more than 250 leads and waiting for the state lab results. Investigators spoke to the family at least once a week to keep them updated. 
Blake's mother, Christina, told the Daily Journal, It's a scary thing. It's been 13 weeks, and that person is still out there. And listeners, we'll be right back. The Fall Line is a true crime podcast covering the coldest cases in the southeastern United States and occasionally beyond. We focus on the missing persons, the unsolved murders, and the unidentified does that don't get media attention. Empathetic and intensively researched, The Fall Line will take you on deep dives into unsolved cases that you've never heard of and make you wonder why you haven't. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. As I mentioned earlier, investigators were withholding a fair amount of information about the crime from the general public. In February 2007, investigators shared information about the burglary that happened the same day as the murders. If you recall, this burglary occurred just four houses away from the Dickus home. Police hoped that sharing information about some of the distinctive items taken during the burglary would help bring information about the murders. These distinctive items included a Maine Township East Park Ridge, Illinois high school class ring. One side of the ring has an American Indian with a banner stating the word Warriors, and the ring bears the year 1968. They also took bicentennial coins with the years 1776 to 1976 on them, as well as an Eisenhower dollar and a Kennedy half dollar. Oddly enough, one of the items taken was a Tupperware one-gallon pitcher of lemonade. Police believe maybe someone saw a person walking around the neighborhood with the pitcher, or maybe they found the pitcher abandoned. I wish there was a better description of the pitcher, like color, shape, size, what era the Tupperware gallon pitcher was from, but that's all we've got. Police did not say what, if anything else, was stolen from the home. And investigators never said directly that the burglaries were connected to the murders, but they wanted to speak with anyone who might have information on those stolen items. In July 2007, on the one-year anniversary of the murders, a detective told the Indianapolis Star that the number one priority for the agency was to solve that case. The detective said tips still came in. They said there were still people they were looking into, but they did not have a specific suspect. In August of 2007, they announced a $10,000 reward, and this was a big deal because previously there was only a $1,000 Crime Stopper reward available. They also put up a billboard making the case visible in the community. In February 2008, investigators said they received tips at least weekly, and everything that comes in is followed up on. The department also had a new police chief, Stan Lynn, so the case was looked at with a fresh set of eyes. The chief told the Daily Journal that they believe the case will be solved. It just may take some time. And looking at it now, in 2023, it certainly has taken some time. In July of 2008, to mark the two-year anniversary, friends and family, including the first officer who responded to the scene, held a memorial near Needham Elementary School. Christina addressed the public at this memorial, stating, If there's anybody out there that knows anything, just please help. She talked about how her life changed forever when her son died, that she struggles to get out of bed, she fears for her safety, 
and constantly looks over her shoulder. She said, quote, It's not fair that someone took my child from me. They don't deserve to be out there running the streets. Media coverage on the case dwindled after the two-year anniversary. In 2009, Sean decided to enlist in the National Guard. He would become a staff sergeant with the 1,438th Transportation Company. He later told the Indianapolis Star that after the murders, he stumbled personally and struggled professionally. He quit his steady job at the manufacturing company and started a pizza restaurant. But then, the economy crashed, and he lost the business. He had a hard time finding work, so he decided to re-enlist, because the military gave him structure, discipline, and purpose. In July of 2010, Indiana State Police and prison officials released an edition of playing cards featuring profiles of unsolved homicides and missing people. The Seven of Clubs featured China and Blake. And at this point, four years after the murders, detectives had followed up on more than 500 leads and connected DNA and fingerprints from more than 200 people. They called the case solvable and said it was not cold yet, but they admitted to being frustrated with how long it was taking. Detectives also discussed their theories. Their main theory is that the murders were connected to the string of burglaries. So they collected fingerprints, palm prints, and DNA from the burglaries, but they have yet to match it to a suspect. Whenever there is a crime that is similar to the Dickus murders, Investigators reach out to that department to see if it could be related. They've also considered the theory that the killer was just someone passing through. Now, that doesn't seem as likely because the neighborhood is in a part of the city that would be difficult for someone to find if they were unfamiliar with the area. Investigators said, quote, Everything is a possibility until it's solved. They also revealed that they review the case often to make sure they haven't missed anything. In July of 2012, Christina spoke to the Daily Journal about Blake, who should be 16 years old. She said she often imagined what her son would be like as a teenager. He'd be excited about getting his driver's license and his first car. He'd want to hang out with his friends. Sean also spoke to the Journal. He said he often thinks about how wonderful and awesome his life would be if China and Blake were still there. He said, it's just not the same, and it's never going to be the same. 2013 was a busy year for Sean. He remarried and was deployed to Afghanistan. In June of 2013, while in Afghanistan, Sean spoke with the Indianapolis Star. He told the press that he lost hope the murders will be solved and that China and Blake will always be part of him. He said, there's not a day that goes by when I don't wish that I could just hug both of them. There's not a day that goes by when I don't wish I had woken up from a nightmare. By the 8th anniversary in 2014, Christina helped create a crime tip reward fund named after Blake, which will allow a reward of up to $25,000 for information in his case. She told the Daily Journal that she is begging for people who know things to please call in. She said, I know it won't bring back my son and it won't bring China back but it will at least take this person off the street so they can't harm another person again. In August of 2014, China's mother, Marsha, passed away. She never got to find out what happened to her precious daughter. 
After her death, investigators ended up going through Marcia's home. They looked for things that could help them with their investigation, things like yearbooks and letters. They wanted to see if there were any old friends or ex-boyfriends they didn't know about, but it does not appear that this search led them any closer to answers in the case. In the spring of 2015, police put up billboards around central Indiana. They were still looking for the one tip they need to break the case. In June of 2015, investigators presented the case to the VDOC Society. They received two key pieces of feedback. One was to continue digging into the burglaries, which they hadn't been able to rule out as being connected. The group also suggested that they consider retesting some evidence for things like touch DNA. In July of 2015, investigators said they'd received 10 new leads in the last year. They followed up on seven of those leads. They brought in a new detective to help them with the case. Investigators also told the Daily Journal that the case wasn't cold. It was still a priority. July 2016 was the 10-year anniversary. Christina spoke with the Daily Journal. She talked about struggling to think about what Blake would be like at 20 years old. Instead, she cherishes memories of her son. She held on to his old toys and had a blanket made out of his clothes. She said Blake is still alive in her heart. While Sean and Christina are left with memories, the investigation into the Dickus murders continues to be a priority for police. They continue to ask people who know something to please, come forward. The last available update in this case is from July of 2021. Investigators said they continue to dedicate themselves to solving the murders. They are certain someone out there knows something, and there continues to be a $25,000 reward available. Anyone with information on this double homicide or the still unresolved burglaries is urged to contact Franklin Police Department at 317-346-6336 or contact Detective Jeff Daw at 317 317- 346-1148. Anonymous tips may be submitted by calling the Franklin Police Department tip line at 317-346-1100. I'm your host, Nina Instead. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Be safe.